This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 22. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. We are on Session 22 today, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. And uh, it's going to be a great show today, my friends. We have on Mr. Michael Rosen, who has been a guy that I've been very aware of in the Bay Area for a long time. But it's been over time that we have grown to be uh, recording friends, I will say. We, you know, bump into each other and have gone to coffee. And I decided it would be great to have Michael on the show. Michael's worked with Santana, Rancid, Papa Roach. Tesla, AFI, The Donna's Journey, Death Angel, Tony McAlpine, Testament. I mean, it just, I could keep going. It just, it goes on and on and on. Although Michael does record various other types of things, I will say at his core, he's a rock guy. And I think that's one of the reasons why we we get along. I think we're both rock guys at our, at our core. He's great. Um, so I went over to his studio that he's got now. He's he decided that it was time to have a, a personal space to work out of. So he's uh, taken over a space that used to be occupied by our friend John Evans, bass player for Tori Amos and Sarah McLaughlin. And um, well, John plays with a lot of people. Anyways, so John moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, and Mr. Rosen here took over. John's space and he's redoing it. Yeah, he's setting it up. So, anyways, that's what we got going on, Michael Rosen today. I want to give a shout out to my friend Ben Bernstein, who I had uh, pizza and coffee with just a while ago. And Ben's an engineer as well, and we've we've done some work together. We worked over at KFOG together for a period of time, um, doing freelance stuff over at KFOG in uh, San Francisco, and. We've just we've crossed paths over the years and we've we've become friends and 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 he's he's just a good guy. Anyways, we were having having some some pizza and then we went to have coffees and well I after I left and was on my way back home to record this, it just occurred to me. I just thought it's really good to have your audio buddies that you can bounce stuff off of that you can that you can you know relate to obviously there's competition in the world of audio and obviously you know in some respects like Ben and I are going for similar gigs but there's not a cutthroat competition between us it's just he gets the gigs he does I get the gigs I do and it's really great to just get get together with Ben and and talk about what we're doing one of our previous guests uh, Don Gunn. Don Don spends a lot of time communicating with other engineers in the Seattle area. I know, Don. I know you spend a lot of time on Twitter, and that's where he hangs out. That's you know he sees what his other buddies are doing, and I think it's good to have that that communication. For me, it really works to have those relationships with with recording friends, and that's kind of part of what the podcast is for me to to get a lot of this information out of people and find those nuggets of wisdom that can be used. And so maybe you're the one person in your town doing recording. I think it's important to find the other people in that town that are doing recording, even if it's one other person. And if it's not, then maybe you need to go to the next town over and find other people to network with. Because whether it's techniques or business or gear trading, whatever it is, I think that that camaraderie is, is critical. And musicians do it. 
Why wouldn't recording engineers do it? Essentially, that's what we're doing when we get together at uh, NAM or AES or Music Mesa. All these things are places where we can, uh, I don't want to say collaborate, but they're places where we can gather information from one another and share information. So there it is. That's my rant on that. And uh, so find your recording buddy and uh, go have pizza, go have coffee. There it is. All right. And I know it's a very sad topic, but today as I record this, B.B. King, of course, has passed away, and and that's that's a major drag, to say the least. But not to drag you down, he had a long career, and uh, what a talent. What a great talent. I heard an interview with him, um, with Terry Gross on NPR today. Man, what a gentleman, too. So uh, this is to B.B. King. Just a moment of silence for B.B. King. All right, B.B. King. So let's get on with our uh, conversation with Mr. Michael Rosen here on Working Class Audio. I'm here with Mr. Michael Rosen in his personal studio in Berkeley. What do you call the studio now? East Bay Recorders. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You teach both at SF State and where else? Uh, Chabot College. Chabot College. In Hayward. What what are those classes called? Um, At... So I kind of do the same classes at different places. Like at, at State, it's a mixing class uh-huh. and an audio production two class. And at Chabot, I teach the entire year as like one program. So the, the fall semester, I teach audio one. And then in the spring, I teach mixing and audio production two. How much of your time does that occupy? You know, I'm still fiddling with the schedule a little <laughs> bit because, you know, I still make records. They don't, I'm not a staff I'm not a faculty person, so I don't get paid like a faculty person. Uh-huh. So um, I try and not have it swallow all of my time. So this semester, for example, I teach um, Monday and Wednesday from nine until one. So then I can come and work at the studio. And then Friday is the one day that I'm toast. I teach at Chabot for four hours during the day and then state from five till eight. Well, wow, that's a, a commute. It's not necessarily just a commute. It's a long day of talking, like seven hours of lecture, just like, you know. You must so. drink a ton of water. Yeah. You know, I, I understand, you know, performing now. <laughs> you understand what a vocalist goes through? I actually do. And I understand, like, you know, how when you're not, you know, in between gigs, like I've taken a little nap and I actually just shut down because, you know, it's like performing. You're teaching for three hours. It's like, you know, waka, waka, waka. You know, you're trying to keep kids and, you know, it, um, interest and you know explain stuff to them and it's pretty hard have you ever seen uh, uh tony robbins interview where he's completely hoarse and he's like uh, know, th- he, he's the motivational guy like occasionally he'll he'll be on like i don't know he'll be on like cnn or something you're like why is he so hoarse but he puts on so many of those motivational seminars i think that that's what happens and I think that that can happen to you when you're te- when you're teaching oh absolutely get you to know, the end of the day the um I remember hearing, like, I had a friend who worked with Celine, and, you know, I heard stories, like, she doesn't talk in between shows, and I was just thought, how weird is that? Like, <laughs> what kind of alien shit is that? You know, you can't, like, you, she, she's writing down shit for, you know, like, here, get me a cup of coffee, and, and now it's like, yeah, I can kind of see that. Like, you know, if you're going to do a two-hour set every night, like, you know, you, you're not going to spend all, you know, on the, you're not going to be on the phone with your girl chatting for, you know, six hours, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, so... So you teach those two things, but but actually, let's go back because you've been doing this for how many years now? I got my first job in 1982. I was um, 
graduated from San Francisco State, and I lived in a warehouse with a band that I was working with called The Hostages. And I used to walk by the automat every day on my way to my crappy busboy job because I couldn't get a job. I just decided that that's where I'm going to work. That's the best studio in the Bay Area. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to work there. So right. I went and knocked on their door and I said, okay, this is where I'm going to work. And fortunately, she was a New York Jew. I'm a New York Jew. We kind of had this little connection. And she goes, well, there, you know, we don't have anything for you, honey. And I said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow. And I went the next day and then I went the next day and I went the next day. And I literally, not figuratively, I went every single day on my way to or from my crappy busboy job. Even when I went to New York for a convention, I went in and said, okay, I'm going to be gone for a week, so don't give my job away. And I came back after the week and I, hey, what's up, Michelle? And she's like, hey, Michael. And I'm like, my job open yet? She said, nope, not yet. And I said, okay, see you tomorrow. And one day I did it and she goes, okay, come here, come here. She goes, okay, we have an opening for a gopher. I said, when do I start? She said, well, we have to interview like other people. I said, it doesn't matter. It's mine. You know it. I know. Let's just get to it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's how I started. Wow. 1982. Wow. And at at the automat at the time, I think uh, Maureen Droney was over there. It was Maureen Droney, yeah, Ken Kessie, David Frazier, Leslie Ann Jones, and Paul Stubblebine. Paul Stubblebine was the mastering engineer. David Rubinson was the owner operator. David Kahn was the local one of the D David Kahn and Howie Klein doing four one five records and Narda Michael Walton with Randy Jackson, Preston Glass, Walter Afanasius, Corrado Restucci was the house band, and that's who was cranking out records there. Holy crap. So that's All of those people, at one including time. yourself, have gone on to do pretty amazing things. It was a pretty uh, magical place, I have to say. A very talent-filled studio. Sandy Perlman ended up taking a room in the back, so... He also had, like, we did Blue Oyster Cult and Imagino, like some of his wacky stuff. I did Dream Syndicate back there with him. There was a lot of stuff going on. It was not quite the heyday of the Automat because at that point, uh, David Rubinson had had his heart attack. Okay. So he was kind of pulling out a little bit, and Narda was had already peaked with Whitney and was kind of, you know, I mean, we still did Aretha Franklin and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So he was still doing it, but it was the peak and then you know i've seen a picture of uh, that time period and you look incredibly young <laughs> it, like like you look like a kid yeah, yeah a little kid and i'm curious what did you get a, your degree in um i have two degrees i got a degree in uh, electronics mm -hmm. and a degree in broadcasting okay both from uh the electronics was from healed engineering college believe it or not and then i transferred into state and i got a degree in broadcasting from state from from san francisco state yeah okay so I, when I lived in Los Angeles, I met a guy who worked at Capitol Studios. That's how I got started is that I worked at a 7-Eleven. And this guy would come in every night at like 11, 11, 30, 12, looking like crap. Um, get the same thing, orange juice, cigarettes. And finally I said, dude, what do you do? Like, he goes, oh, I'm a maintenance guy at Capitol Studios. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like I had, you know, I didn't know anything about it. So he said, oh, yeah, you want to come and check it out? Because all I did was listen to music. I played guitar and, you know, I wanted to be a musician, but. I didn't think I had the um, drive to do it. So he took me to Capitol Studios and I walked in and Booker T and the MGs were there recording. And I just looked around and I went, I said, that's it. This is what I'm going to do. This is so he kind of, you know, back then 
the path to getting in the, the business was mm-hmm. to, to be a maintenance guy. You had to fix stuff. You had to be able to repair stuff. Like that was the way you got in was on the bottom. Right. And so he said, well, I would get this degree and do that. And I said, cool, that's what I'll do. So I kind of mapped it out based on like how he said that he would get hired at Capital or another studio at Fantasy or whatever. So when I got hired at the Automat, it was go for a slash maintenance guy. So I fixed headphones and headphone boxes and worked on consoles and, you know, did maintenance and stuff like that. This is going to sound completely odd to ask you this, but do you have any siblings? I do. I have a brother and sister. Older? One older, one younger. And what do they do? Older sister is makes uh, glass, uh-huh. stuff blows glass, and my brother's an accountant. In Los, he's still in Los Angeles. I, I ask because I'm just trying to get into the mindset of you at that at that time period of you're working at the Seven Eleven, and one would think, oh, what you know, you play guitar, you listen to music, you, you know, maybe you're kind of some slacker, but you really had the the drive enough to to zero in on that guy to ask him what he was doing. And it just so happens yeah, right. that he was, a, that he worked at a recording <clears throat> studio and, and, and then your persistence later on to walk by the automat and, and, and bug them consistently till you got the job. That's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was at, at um, San Francisco state, I worked like I looking back, like the recording program was not that great, but what was really great is I worked in the student union on campus there and my boss was a really eager beaver kind of guy. And he really liked um, having us take control and do some really cool stuff. Like we booked Gil Scott Heron and Greg Kim. I mean, we did some really good concerts around the student union. And um, so the people that I worked with in the student union got on to be really, really successful. Like a bunch of them worked at Russian Hill recording mm-hmm. and Sam Lemer who worked there is like a big film guy at Pixar and stuff like that. So, I got as much from that. And then the bands that I was working with on the side kind of gave me the real drive to to really have the balls to go up to the autumn. Because I thought, well, I didn't start this to not get a job at a recording studio. You know, like I'm, I'm going to work at a studio and I'm not going to work at some little hole in the wall. I want to actually learn from the best. So I said, I didn't just spend five years going through school to not get there. So I just said, that's just, you know, what I'm going to do. And <laughs> That's that's pretty amazing. You you did your time at the Automat. What happened ultimately so, there? Um, because he ha- <clears throat> because David had a heart attack. Mm-hmm. He decided not to do it anymore. And that whole area in San Francisco was blowing up. It was like right around the corner from the Moscone Center. Oh, so big bucks for the property. So he's like, okay, well, I had a quadruple bypass, and you know, my doctor said you can't really do this anymore because it's going to kill you. And the prices were so good at the time. Like we actually hosted Jesse Jackson at the automat in 1984 because they had the convention at the Moscone center, the democratic, the democratic convention. So we were close enough to where he rented like the office space on the top floor to do his thing in 1984. It just was a good time for, for him to get out. So when they closed, everybody else was kind of above the level. Like they didn't need it. Like Leslie Ann Jones was Leslie Ann Jones and David Fraser was, you know, David Fraser. And I was the one guy that was kind of like, I, I needed to still be working at a studio. So my boss, Michelle Zarin called Nina at fantasy, who was her assistant at the record plant and said, I got a guy you need to hire because you need to hire him because we're closing and he needs a job. So I came over and Nina hired me at fantasy. So I went straight from the automat 
in 84 to fantasy studios in berkeley was tom size there then so so that was another amazing situation so at fantasy at the time was stephen hart tom size dave luke um danny copelson and myself and danny danny was part of the old wave who kind of did the journey stuff it was wally buck and and danny copelson and this whole other wave but there was like four of us who've, you know, gone on, you know, Tom size is still working. Dave Luke runs a studio here in town. Tom size. And I just emailed with each other. He's, he's going to be on the show. Yeah, no, Tom's great. He's uh he's does Y and T and he's got his own place set up. And the, because those are the formative years really for you. Those early studio years are like, you're, you're super hungry. You're still learning a lot. What are like some super critical things that you learned then, whether they be, technical or personal the first was not technical at all it was the automat was magic it was like every friday night we'd have wine like at five or six o'clock you know the entire staff you know we'd go to the to the owner's wine cellar and we'd break out four or five bottles we like hung out it was like this i mean narda michael walden randy jackson carrado walter i mean they were all these people making music and it was just this incubator for magic you know? Randy Jackson is that Randy Jackson of yeah of, American Idol oh wow yeah he was the yo he, dog Randy Jackson I was his adopted first son I made him and his <laughs> wife adopt me my daughter still does not believe it to this day but I did a bunch of records because he was always doing demos and always getting in the studio and you know whenever I could sit and engineer for him oh yeah of course Randy I got it and he was always hustling studio time and I mean Randy was was awesome and um it was just so creative and it was all about making the environment creative for people to work in. The technical stuff is cool. The technical stuff is always there. Like I worked with guys who knew what they were doing. I mean, Leslie Ann Jones was an amazing engineer, Ken Kessie, David Fraser. But when you're starting, you're almost, you don't even know what you don't know and what to look for. So you're kind of like, you know, when I look back, it's like, it was such a blur that, you know, some of the stuff just seeps in, but you don't recognize the big moments of what they're showing you as much because you're just learning. Right. But the whole vibe and the way you move through the environment and deal with people and the situations and the personalities and all that, that's, what's really cool. You know, because yeah, you don't have the 30,000 foot view at that time. Right. You're just in, in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, and coincidentally at the time, I think uh, Sylvia Massey was friends with the parking lot attendant and she would see Leslie go in and out of work when she was hanging out with her parking lot attendant buddy at the time. So, yeah. And so I knew Sylvia because she worked at a place in the city for David Ferguson. She like assisted me on a couple of things. I can't remember the name of the, the studio. It was um, a funky little place back in the day. Yeah. I mean, the whole time though around then was just so cool. I mean, Bill Graham was doing his thing and, there was just so much energy in the Bay Area that it was just an amazing time to, to, to get in and learn how to do it. And then I would say that fantasy was a little bit more the technical stuff. Like it was a little less woo-woo, as, right. as I call it. You know, it was a different vibe, but they had better gear than we did at, at the Automat. They had the Neve consoles and they were, you know, four rooms. So it was, it was a little bit more serious on that aspect. Bigger operation. Bigger operation. The film company was attached to fantasy at that time so we were doing movies because i did a bunch of movie work for that was salt zance salt right? zance, yeah. So, <clears throat> and back then when you did a movie like it was like a village descended on you like when you did a, 
a picture because now it's like one guy sitting in a basement with a Pro Tools rig. Back then it was 150 people because there was, you know, 10 editors and each editor had an assistant and each assistant had an apprentice and the directors and, the, you know, the whole thing was just like this gigantic thing coming at you. And it was just super fun because there was so much energy and you know so many things going on on a picture so there was a lot of stuff going on and the label at fantasy was still cranking out you know reissues and doing all that kind of stuff so there's a lot more money flowing there was a lot more money flowing this was you know and this was also kind of at the beginning of like cds so everybody was duplicating everything so if you owned all those records oh, right yeah. especially at fantasy then they were transferring it all to cds so everybody bought those cds so you know it was it was a good time to to be in that part of the business, you know, what, what do you, uh, as far as your memory of rates at the time for what an engineer would charge or what fantasy would charge or, you know, what, what were studio rates like? What were engineer rates like? Do you have a memory of that? Well, you know, it's kind of weird cause I was a staff guy at fantasy. So okay. I didn't at that time, like for those from 84 to 90, like, I don't know, I didn't have a, a rate. Do you remember your salary then? I don't actually. It's weird. Somebody asked me that on a a questionnaire about something out and it's like, yeah, I don't. It was not good. (laughs) Okay. Because fantasy did not pay legally. Like over, you got paid for 40 hour weeks and overtime, they based on 160 hour month. So if you didn't work, if you worked 80 hours in a week, which was typical, she wouldn't book you the next week and then you wouldn't make any overtime. And it took them years. Somebody actually like took them to court, you know, which we had threatened to do. And their, their answer was quit. You know, like go to Los Angeles, work someplace else. So it was the only game in town. So we would typically work, you know, I mean, you're working on a record, you know, with Eddie money or, you know, Aerosmith, it would, you know, it's not a 40 hour week. It was, you know, 80 hour weeks and you do two of those in a row. Then she say, well, don't come in for two weeks. It's like, but I don't get any overtime. And, it was a little sketchy. They were not the fairest of people as far as that goes. But at that period of time, you huh. know, at the, at the moment though, it didn't matter. You just, you know, you're making records and big bands were coming through. So you're like, wow, this is really cool. As far as the rates of the studio, like for the most part, I could get studio a back in the day for a grand a day. That was pretty much what I would be able to negotiate with her. Now, um, if it was me doing it, and I was running it through them that I could book it for a grand a day and have her pay me as well. You know, if I could manage it, like say I'll book me as the engineer and pay you the rate. A lot of times it wasn't the case. Like I'd actually have to get paid on top of that and try and negotiate a little bit more. Studio B, which was the smaller room, was like between three and $500 a day. And Studio D was also, I could get it for a grand a day. B was the, it had a single room, right? Right. It was the small room. So I would typically the way, especially when I left there, when I left being on staff, it was track drums in Studio A for three days, go to Studio B for four or five weeks and do overdubs, and then go to Studio D for a week to mix. Oh. That way I could take like a $35,000 budget and stretch it as, as far as I could. After Fantasy, what, where'd you go? I just became independent. So I did, um, when I worked at Fantasy, I got hooked up with doing metal records. This band called Testament, which was like oh, one, yeah. of the, one of the big four in the metal thing. Then I just kind of started a run of like four years of just doing metal bands. Like Testament, Forbidden, Metallica, I did a Metallica song, Violence just all these metal bands. And I used fantasy as my home base. Mm-hmm. Like I, I just wasn't on staff anymore. After that, I just started moving around the Bay area, you know, wherever studios I worked at shark bite quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a bunch of stuff in Sacramento with the um, 
Tesla guys, they had a studio, so I worked up there. Papa Roach, those guys had a studio, so I worked up there quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to think where else. You know, just around the Bay Area, where mm -hmm. we're good. Curious, like, where you were at when we got past the modular digital multi-track ADATs, Task MD88s. Where were you when Pro Tools started to come in into the picture, and at what point did that start to become part of your workflow? So I remember the ADATs. I remember that whole world because I started, Troy Lucetta had a studio down in Hayward that I, I ran for a while. And Troy was the drummer in, in, in Tesla. Tesla, right? I was working with him on a project. And you, I mean, you remember the, the ADATs. I mean, it was oh, just yeah. horrible. E7 was your worst nightmare. Like if you didn't, <laughs> you'd have to do a session and then copy the whole thing and spend all this time. And if you didn't have a bunch of machines, it's like if you had 16 tracks, you had to go from one to the other. So you'd have to waste a bunch of time backing up stuff. But you had to do it because you see E7 and it's like, the world ends, you know? Right. Um, so I was doing a project with Troy and I remember seeing Pro Tools for the first time and I'm watching this guy because I didn't know what it was. And I went, that's the tidal wave, <coughs> tidal wave coming. <laughs> if I don't figure this stuff out and get on it, I'm going to be out of the business. I, I kind of got with this guy and watched what he did. And then I just had a bunch of friends. This guy, I don't know if you know, James Michael. He was, um, he's actually in 6AM now. He was in a band with the original owner from Sharkbite, Mark Keaton. Yeah. They were in an Americana band. And um, I did their record. And James was really good at Pro Tools. And he... Um, Six a, is that Nikki Six's that's band? Nikki Six's band. And he was doing like a Tom Petty wannabe thing. And he got signed to a <laughs> record deal from this company called Beyond, Beyond Records, I think, in Los, <coughs> in Los Angeles. And he sort of showed me around Pro Tools and I said, I better figure this out like really, really quick. So I had a couple of guys who I knew who knew Pro Tools better than me. And I just started pestering them and I bought an HD rig or a TDM rig at that time because I wasn't going to get like the 002 or I figured I'm going to do this. So I got the biggest system I could find and just started figuring it out. At what point did you have a family? 1990, I got married. Okay. How many I kids have, do you have? I have two. I have two daughters. And 90, so I lived in the city until 90 in San Francisco. And then in 1990, I moved to the East Bay because I was working at Fantasy a bunch. And my cousin had an apartment here and she was moving back to New York. So I took, you know, I had done my film in the city. It was like, I'm good. Like I lived in a warehouse. I lived in the mission. I lived in the hate. Like I, I got all You the, got it out of your system. I got it covered, and, you know. <laughs> I mean, I lived in the city in a really good time when all the punk rock was going on and it was, it was pretty amazing. But I, after a while, I was like, okay, I'm good. I need to, to get out. 93 is when I had my first daughter. Okay. And where were you at recording wise in your career at that point when your first daughter was born? At night in 93, I was kind of in the middle of like doing all the metal stuff and then kind of moving a little bit to, to punk rock and stuff okay. like that. So I was an independent guy just traveling around, you know, working wherever. How did you make... How did you make the, I mean, as far as the, the amount of work you were getting, was it enough? Were you struggling? Because you were doing some, I mean, those are, I know of all the, if not most of those bands you've said. So were budgets good enough that you were making a living? Yeah, you were doing okay back then. You know, it, it's weird. As soon as I'm looking at you thinking about it, going, wow, I wish I could remember some of that stuff. Like, um, yeah, it was okay. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, the, the guys above me were probably doing a little bit better. You know, there was a, a few guys who were doing metal records who were probably making more, you know, who were getting bigger budgets. But you could do okay, you know, out of a, 
$50,000 budget, I would pay myself about 15, you know, and then be able to get enough time to do the record, like going from a big room to a, <clears> small, <throat> to a small room and, you know, like not having it be. And I would say it was about six weeks to eight weeks a record if I could manage it and a lot of pre-production, you know. So if, if I was getting 50 out of a record, I could make about 15. You know? Would you always pay your like say okay here's the budget I'm going to pay myself this much and a lot this much for all the expenses? Would would that was your Pretty mo? Much. Yeah, I mean you know and it depended on the project. Like Testament was I think 125 thousand, so I paid myself more right because they wanted more time and the budget was bigger and you know I had a little bit more flexibility. So you know part of it depended on how the band wanted to record and where they wanted to record. You yeah. Know? If they didn't care and they could, they wanted to pay for being in Studio A the whole time, then it's like, okay, well, then we can maybe take a week less or do this. But, you know, the thing is, is that I've always looked at it like it's my money. You know, like when I get somebody's budget, right? I'm, I'm not going to say I'm cheap, but I don't want to spend $1,000 a day on a room that's humongous when I don't need to be in a room that's humongous. You know what I mean? If I'm doing overdubs, I can be in a small room at Fantasy or, or studio like mine and save the money for something else. You're given this money and told to produce uh, the end product, how you get there and how well it's done or, or, the, or the, the quality of that product is ultimately what's important. It's not necessarily the goal is not to book the most expensive place because you can. No, I don't think so. The, um, because you got to remember it, it's a loan for the band, for the band. And I, if I'm a producer, I'm getting three, three points on the record. Right. So they have to pay back that loan before I get paid before they get paid. So if I don't need to take a hundred thousand dollars, right. And I can do it for 65 and do it the same quality and well, then that means they don't have to go in the hole an extra 35 to pay the record company back before they start making their money. So I always kind of looked at it like, you know, let's be comfortable. Let's do it smart. You know, the, the more a band successful, the more they wanted to do bigger things, which is cool. You earn the right to not be doing a record in seven days and working 24 hours a day and, you know, killing yourself. So, it kind of depended a little bit on the band and where they were at. And like I said, I like to look at it like it was their money, you know, like, or it's like it was my money and look after it. So I wasn't, you know, wasting a bunch of money on stupid stuff. Like I'm not catering lunch every day. I could, there's a runner who can go get us a sandwich. We don't need to, you know, have a hundred dollar a day for, you know, lunch budget and stuff like that. So how did you handle the legal aspects? Like getting your three points as a producer, did you have a manager? I had a manager for a second, actually. It was uh, Jeff Salzman and Elliot Kahn. Oh, Kahn and Salzman. <laughs> Kahn and Salzman. Former managers of Green Day. Former managers of Green Day. They actually managed me for a minute. They got me like one record, but ultimately they were pretty ineffective being managers. And honestly, collecting your money is the hardest part. I've gotten royalties from Testament on a, a big record. I got one big check. And I got one smaller check and I've never seen another check since. <laughs> and their goal when I called the record company to get paid was chase us down. We don't care. Right. Like, you want to find the rest of that money? Because I know that there's there should be a ton of money. It's like, yeah, hire a lawyer, figure it out. You know, it'll cost you as much to get your money as it will to get paid. So they're not the most uh, cooperative record companies. They're not really in this to you never got the sense that they were really in business with you, that they were in business against you, you know, and the bands, you know, typically what happened was when you did a contract and I used Barry Simons who did all the the paperwork, you would get a letter of direction 
which meant that the record company had to pay you directly because you don't want to chase a band around for your three points. You'll never see anything as much as I love bands. Like once you're done, like the whole money thing is like, I owe you what? <laughs> so you would That's get not what we agreed to. All right. So you would get a letter of direction, meaning that the, your, your points and your money would come directly from the record company and the band wouldn't have to actually oversee it at all. They would have to agree to, to the, to the structure, but the record company would pay you directly. To me, when I every time I have this conversation with somebody, I just go, "Oh my god, what a colossal pain in the ass all that is!" Oh, it's horrible. And is there? Do you feel that there's a better way to do business with a band? And do you do that now? God, is there a better way? I think Albini's approach is just you. You do a hard day's work. You get a hard. You get that pay, and that's it. And once you're done with the band, you're done. Like he never took a royalty from Nirvana, apparently. Which I think is crazy. Like, how can this? Like, I'm, <laughs> that's so much money on that. Like, right? I mean, or like when An I Andrew Sheps talked about uh, not uh, getting a royalty with Adele. That's crazy. How does he not get a, a royalty with Adele? Did I, he not produce? See, now <clears throat> to me, like I feel because I do a lot of work producing. Like I arrange and I really sweat over like lyrics and like I think that you know it it is part of what makes the song successful ultimately is the artist no doubt about that it's them like my name goes on the back their name their name goes on the front but i think that you know we help them make choices that make it successful and i think that you know if you're doing that and you're you're charged with doing that task and you mm -hmm. do it well then you should get paid like them not the same amount but i think it's you know worth it so um do you do that on everything you work on? Not or? everything. Okay. Not everything. Like, you know, when I did Rancid, some of that stuff, I'm just engineering or, you know, certain, so certain things. And, you know, being a producer engineer, it's kind of one of those really gray zones because they know you're a producer. They'll kind of lean on you in that way sometimes and sometimes not. So it can be a little tricky, you know, like, and, and I certainly never want to just go, nope, it's not my problem. I'm not producing, <laughs> you know, like you try and be, you know, supportive and kind of do that. Um, as far as getting paid on it, you know, it's tough, man. The, um, I kind of have stopped chasing the points down as much. Like, this is what I typically do with the band. It's like, I'll come up with a rate and we'll figure out a price for the record. And I'll say, look, I get three points on a record. When you've made your money back, if you're making money, I expect you to pay me my percentage of the record. I'm not going to chase you down. I'm not going to follow you to a gig and see you've sold 20 records and get my $16.99, you know, but... If this thing blows up and it is successful because of the work we did, then I would hope that you would take care of the people who you've made an arrangement with. And that's cool. And if not, I'm not going to sweat. I'm do not going to do chase down a band. For, you I know. mean, it sounds like an insurance policy if, if a band explodes. I would say yes. But, you know, like I said, it's, it is a funny thing, you know, like when you're on the front side of it, we're all in this together. And then all of a sudden the money starts raining down. It's like, what was your name again, dude? Like, what did you do on that record? And you're like, yeah, I'm the guy who was in the chair for 16 hours a day. Let me ask you what you did on that record. Right. Know? So on the lesser known bands where it doesn't really go anywhere, you make the record, you make your, 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 your day rate or your engineering rate. And then if it doesn't go anywhere, you don't chase the, the points down. And if it does, you have a piece of paper that says. Yeah. I mean, my goal is to for them to make a great record. And if, you know, it, it blows up and people love it, then that's great. And it's fantastic. And I want to see them make a bunch of money. And, you know, like if you're participating in that way, then you should get paid. And hopefully you're dealing with honorable guys and bands who realize that you, your value and what you did and, you know, they take care of what they, they should. Um, 
you know, they're not the only ones, though, though. Record companies are really hard to get your money out of. Fortunately, I've done a bunch of records for Epitaph. Epitaph is fantastic. They always pay. They, I still get checks from them. Um, AFI, which was uh, Nitro, those guys take care of their bills. Capital, which I did less than Jake from, I still get royalty checks from. So some of them are good, but the littler ones, it is a cautionary tale for bands, like who you decide to go to work with, because not all of those guys are reputable. And when you're signing a record company, you're basically getting a business partner, you know, and if your business partner isn't paying you, you're a part of the business, then getting signed to a record company doesn't really mean shit because you're not going to get your money. So, you know, sometimes selling them out of the back of your car can be just as lucrative as, you know, working <clears throat> with a record company who's going to you know keep dinging you for charges and this and that. And, you know, you don't see your money. It can kind of suck. Okay. So then that raises the question for me when we're talking about honorable people, what if you encounter a band, you love the band, you love the music, but maybe there's a couple members or a, a member that is that you know in your heart is less than honorable. Do you still get involved? Probably not. Because, you know, if I'm going to be away from my family and my friends and playing tennis, which is my hobby and doing other stuff that I love, you know, like for somebody that I know is not cool about this thing, why? Why bother? You know, if they're not going to be cool now, they're not going to be cool later. As you operate today, you don't have a manager. Do you just have boilerplate contracts that have piled up over you time? You know, I haven't even done a contract for a while, to be honest. Like, it's usually just a handshake and just like, because, you know, the other thing was like, I would, you know, spend all this money on lawyers for contracts, for records that never made any money. So that was another two grand that I was out for making the contract that I knew that they weren't going to sell that many records. And, and even if they did, you know... Um, a contract doesn't mean anything, dude. If somebody doesn't want to honor the contract, I don't care if you have, you know, pick your favorite lawyer drawing it up. It doesn't mean anything. If somebody says, yeah, that's cool. I'm just still not going to honor that contract. It doesn't mean anything. Then you got a lawyer up and they got a lawyer up. So you got to like look at, even if I get that money, am I going to blow it all like in lawyer fees? Well, that's what they will say. Like, you know, basically I had the guys at Atlantic say, well, yeah, Testament probably owes you a bunch of money, but we have an entire floor full of lawyers whose job it is to to do this stuff. And if you're due $20,000, we're going to make it cost you $20,000. So you'll not make a penny on this. So it's up to you. If you want to go after it, have at it. So when, when you get involved with the band, do you analyze all those different elements beyond even what, you know, the music and your passion about the band? You know, not too much anymore. Like, I, you know, honestly... For me, as long as I get paid a decent rate, my decent rate to, to do the project and I have insurance policy and you say, okay, you know, three points or whatever it is on the record if, if and when something happens and let it go and trust, you know, like would I not do a project if I didn't get that stuff in writing? I don't think so too much anymore. You know, chasing down that kind of money is just. Now, what if you didn't have the teaching gigs? Would you feel the same way? What if you were only engineering now and you didn't have that, the income from those two teaching gigs? Would, do you think that you? I don't think it would change. Like you know, okay. the getting paid on some of this stuff is just hard. Like I said, as long as I can get my the the mailbox money is what we call it. Yep, is just a nice bonus. Okay, like I got a check yesterday. It was like one hundred and thirty seven dollars from AFI, and it's like sweet, <laughs> awesome. You know, and it's been like that for like five years, six years with those guys. Every you know four months, I get a check, and it's like awesome. That's good to know that, yeah. But they worked with a good company. That was Nitro. And that guy, you know, Dexter was a legit guy and they took care of their bills and they, you know, they honored their stuff. And, you know. That's good. Not all these guys, especially, you know, the smaller ones. Yeah, we ran out of, you know, we spent it, you know. La, 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 la. Okay, so you, you teach these classes and 
beyond the technical, what do you tell these students about the reality of the future for them? Well, that's an interesting question because when I started teaching, I subbed, or I was a guest lecturer for a friend of mine's class at, at one of these places. And uh, he said, you're awfully negative, Michael. Like the first thing you say is there's no jobs left at fantasy or places like that. And I said, and I thought about it for a little bit. And I said, well, first of all, it's true. There's no staff places like fantasy or the automat anymore. And I said, okay, you're right. I'm going to flip it up and be positive, right? Because I still do this. I'm a cockroach. <laughs> I'm not leaving this business. This is what I wanted to do since I was 16. And there's no plan B or plan C or plan D for me. So I kind of flip it up with the students. And I say, look, if you want to do this, find a niche, put your foot in the door and kick that motherfucker open. Yeah. You know, like, but what you got to do is you got to be a baller. You got to be able to rock on your equipment. You got to be fast. You got to be good. You got to be really personable, mm -hmm. right? Hopefully you got to have some gear. You got to have some relationships with studios around town that you can get a deal for your people, you know? So you can do it. You just can't do it how we did it back in the day. You know, you can't coast along being an assistant at, you know, the automat or at Lucas, you know, you got to find a niche that you like. If it's punk rock, then tat it up and find the bands and rock on making punk rock records and kill it, you know? So that's why I try and teach them. Cause you know what? I've always been a rebel, man. I, I like, you know, I'm always sort of railing against the man. So to me, I like nothing better than see these young kids, you know, a lot of them are hip hop and a lot of them are doing rock, you know, punk rockers like do it fucking do it just make sure that you know how to rock the gear and you know how to take care of your business then you can do it so i show my students how to build a recording studio from working with a two-track interface to a 24-track interface because you know i don't know about you but i've done records in rehearsal rooms with famous bands i did a tesla record in their rehearsal room i brought all of my gear up and i said okay give me a day to set up the studio and Next day they came in, there was a 24-track recording studio in their rehearsal room, you know? Yeah. I've, I've done the rehearsal room thing with ADATs. Yeah. And I learned then that it, I mean, you can really honestly make a record anywhere. I mean. Dude, I did Papa Roach. We rented that mansion in Los Angeles, the Paramore. Oh, you told me. Yeah, we brought in all of our stuff. I brought in a console, preamps, the whole thing. We did, you know, pretty much a record in this mansion and- Fancy, it's probably not much different than a Led Zeppelin thing when they brought in multi-tracks or did whatever they did. You know, it's just more convenient and bands want to be able to do that. So, you know, I'll show these guys that it's not always as clean as working in a proper studio, you know, and you're going to have to know how to hook up the interface and how to troubleshoot your shit and, you know, how do you work around this, that, and the other thing. And At the end of the day, like, I love just going to a studio because I know that I can just, I don't have to set up. Uh, a headphone system from scratch. Absolutely. And that's why I have this place because, you know, I was doing stuff in my garage and, you know, the, the, um, having been at fantasy and the automat and working at, you know, some amazing studios, it's like, yeah, I like that, you know, and it is nice to have a certain bare minimum <laughs> level of being cool that, you know, and I think that as an artist, people dig that, you know, like when they come into a studio, I think that there has to be, it has to be more special than rolling into your garage. You know, you want to walk into a place and see lava like I have going on in here and, yeah. and go, okay, this is like, I got to put some skin in the game to make this happen. It's not whatever, you know, you got to put a little something out there and you got to know that I'm getting charged by the hour or by the day. And I can't just, you know, 
throw a piece of crap at the pro tools thing and he'll fix it for eight hours. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. I think you got to have to raise your game to do this. You can't just sort of, you know, why was having, why was taking over this studio space for you? What's been the best part of this? And because when I walked in, you said I should have done this years ago. Because that same thing, like, you know, when you do this stuff in your garage, people have no respect for it. It's your garage. It's like, yeah, whatever. I can't work today. We'll cancel. It's like, well, no, fuck that, dude. Like, so when I first started, right, check this out. When I first started at the Automat, we had Santana, which who I've worked with years later, ironically enough, was booked to do a, a three week, three month booking, right? And as it's getting closer and closer, you know, she, the studio manager was doing the prep stuff and blah, blah, blah. And about a month out, maybe less than a month out, he canceled. She said, I want $10,000 for canceling that time. And they wrote a check for $10,000 to the studio for canceling time. Okay. You, know? you would never get that now. I have clients who wake up in the morning and say, my voice is a little scratchy. I can't come in today. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I'm booked. <laughs> I booked you today, you know? I think if people don't, treat it seriously they don't take it seriously they don't make serious stuff you know what i mean and like this may not be fantasy but this ain't my garage you can't hear the water running when you're trying to do a vocal like you actually have to be a professional about this and i think that even though my studio is small i run it like a professional thing i try and make it look tight i have coffee every morning i make it clean you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it should still have that feel like i'm going into a recording studio (laughs) to make a record you got a couch i got a couch you got some gear and some mics and you know what i mean like you you want to feel like i'm making a record not like i'm going to the gap today you know i want to right i'm gonna i'm gonna sing about you know saving the world or my mom dying or you know something that means something to you and it has to be done in a place that feels like i can do something that means something in this place you know what i mean yeah okay and, um and i and i just like the fact that for me you know i was doing stuff out of my house for a while okay i thought okay well this is cool i can mix records here i have all the same gear but there's no danger there's no like no i'm gonna push back if you want to make a record you have to be at this level have, the bar has to be up here not down here and i think that the people have responded to it. I think that artists want to have that. They don't want to just, well, okay, I'm just going in his garage. Yeah, fuck it, whatever, you know. And I think it's better for the business. And and with all the mobile stuff, yeah, there's a million guys. Just because you have a microphone and interface and a computer does not make you a record producer or an engineer. I'm sorry, it doesn't. You know, you actually have to know where it came from, what it's about. You're invested in it. You want others to be invested in it. And don't you want that if you want somebody to listen to it? Because that's what happens when you listen to it. You get invested in it. Yeah. Right. If you don't get invested in it as a listener, then what it, the whole thing breaks down. So if you're not invested in it as the creator, uh-huh. isn't it the, the missing link starts at the beginning, right? So circling around to gear, do you think that the extreme opinions about, about the approaches of gear, like mixing in the box or mixing in a console or that kind of stuff, where do you fall on all that stuff? Like some people are like, oh, you're not making real records unless you're, you know, mixing through an SSL or you're not. Uh, yeah, those days are over. I don't believe that. Like, okay. I never really liked to mix through an SSL anyway. I was like, <laughs> I like to mix through a Neve. My favorite was the 8108s that we had at Fantasy, the most musical board ever. 
just a spitting and farting pain in the ass console because the stuff always broke. But to me, that was the most musical console I've ever worked on. And I know people are going to go, Oh, the 8108. That's not the cool Neve. The cool Neve is the old 8078s. But this, when they first started going over to the microprocessor bus assignments, the 8108s, the EQs on those boards just were so magical, hmm. you know, like I said, they were a bit of a pig to operate because they kept, you know, the, they broke down quite a bit. Um, you just can't live in the past, though. You know, like people just can't afford to pay a thousand dollars a day for fantasy. You know, I mean, we talked about it. I get calls, you know, oh, can you bring the snare up? Can you bring this up? Can you bring that up? You know, who's going to pay to go back to fantasy, set all the gear up, recall the board, recall the board, recall everything for a, 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 a snare drum to come up? Do you, well, do you think that? That's be that's because people know that they can make those requests now with, absolutely without the huge impact Most financially. You know? And is that a problem? I I think that the, it's only a problem when people abuse it. Mm -hmm. Like the cool thing about back then was that we settled for imperfection, but not that it was bad. Like somebody once said, you never finish a record; you just stop mixing it. <laughs> Right? right. Like back then it was like, you'd spend a day on it and say, okay, you're good. You're good. You're good. That records, that song's done. Yep. Let's move on. Years later, you may go back and go, oh man, I should have raised that one part or, oh, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. That's cool. That's part of making a record. That's part of where you were at that time making that record. Now, unfortunately in Pro Tools, there's never a, a period mark at the end of a sentence. It's always a comma, right? Because you can always go back and say, oh, but let me just change. Uh, oh, but let me, it's like, does it make it better? I don't think so. I think it just changes the the viewpoint on it a little bit. You know what I mean? Like at some point you have to say, okay, is that good? Is that good? Is that good? Yeah, I'm good. Let's move on. I just did a, I just finished this record and mixing this record and, and recording it. And the, the head, you know, the head guy in the band called me and said, we're good on everything. Everything sounds great. We want you to auto tune the first line of this song. And part of me was like completely relieved. I was like, oh, wow, that's it? Shit, great. And the other part of me was like, does that even matter? Uh, of course I did it, sent it off, and he was like, yep, perfect, love it. I don't mind that I can go back and do that. Sometimes the the lists are too long. Right, and that's, you know, the, the problem is, is that you're sending mixes to, to kids who are listening to it for a million times in their headphones and finding every niggly and noogly little thing. It's yes. Like, is that really the spirit of that song? Is that one hit not being up loud enough make that song a hit or not a hit? Yeah. Uh, you know, you do the best you can. And and I, so I don't try and get too caught up in the gear. Like I do mix out of the box because I can't make it work in the box. Like all the, the tricks that I do, like when I try and do them directly in Pro Tools, I can't quite get my gain structure. Something like doesn't work for me. So I split it out somewhat. Like I'll have the 16 channel mixer. But I do a lot of stuff in the box. Do I think it needs to be on a console? Depends on what it is. I mean, if you say, Michael, I want to make a record like this. This is what I have to work with. This is how I want to do it. Then I'll figure out how to make it work that way. If you say we're going to fantasy, we're going to do it on a console, then I'll kind of change my skis a little bit and work towards that. So I don't think there's one way to do it, you know, because there's guys who are making stuff sound fantastic mixing it in the box. So you're just like... I get frustrated with artists though sometimes that come at me and say I want to I want to make a record you know uh, in this fashion or using this type of gear. I always just equate it to like if you're a homeowner or you're you're and you you say 
I would like a new roof, but I want you to do it like this. It's like, do you really care how I do your roof? Don't you care that I make you a roof that doesn't leak at the end of the day? And what do you know about roof technology, roof making tech or, you know, whatever. I just, I get frustrated with artists in that respect. And I, I've talked artists out of working on analog tape when they, when their budgets are small and the time frame they give me is very short. I'm like, you know what? You don't know the band that you're about to, that you're hiring. You don't know me. We've never worked together. And you're only giving us all three days to do 15 songs. That's on, that's well, that whole, the whole analog thing is a different debate. Like, you know, yeah, I did a record probably three years ago with Lars from Rancid mm-hmm. on tape, which I hadn't done for a while. And it's like, ooh, tape, 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 tape. It's like, yeah, tape sucks, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's like, you know, going back to the 50s, you know, like there's no more, you know, Ozzy and Harriet. I mean, it's okay, but I mean, it just doesn't, when you listen, like you get a, a kick drum sound and super punchy and, you know, just snapping and you put it on a piece of tape, it comes back, it kind of goes, you know, and then you spend your time EQing it after the fact to make it sound like you wanted it to sound when it went to tape. Right. I think the thing about tape is that it's how you worked. Right. There was danger again. Like you want to beat that take, you got to erase that one. So what's it going to be? Can you play it better? Or can you not play it better? It's like a game show. You just want deal or no deal or no deal. Yeah. Do, do you want to take a chance and win a thousand? Absolutely. And you know the thing was is that um, if if you got the balls and you think you can play it better, roll it back. Let's punch it in. You know and. I'm all about that, but like the whole mystique about tape sounding fantastic, I think that it had its limitations. I think that it was more the flow of how we did it. I think that, yeah, there were certain things. I mean, it warmed things up, but, you know, I got a ton of preamps. I have cool mics. You know, we have a great room. I can make it sound like that. It's not, you know, plus nobody wants to hear it sound old and fuzzy. It's coming out of your iPhone. It's coming out of, you know, laptop speakers. You know, everybody wants it to sound, you know, competitive. You mm-hmm. know? I think it was the fact that, you weren't staring at the screen the whole time, you know, and people are engaged more as musicians with each other. You yeah. Know, and they were like, okay, did we get that right? Okay. You can't be detected on tape. Right. So let's lock it down to the click. Let's zone in as far as being musicians. If they're down to do that kind of work, it doesn't matter what you record it on. If musicians are attuned to, mm-hmm. to doing that, you can record it on a four track. It's all cool. Um, I always go into this with people. Your what's your, uh, your economic approach these days with how you deal with your business, your life, your specifically your gear. We talked about, you know, both of us trying to get out of credit card debt uh, earlier. What have you learned over the years in regards to this business and money and how do you, what, what can you impart on the audience as far as like, this is, this works for me. This, this didn't work for me kind of concepts. That's an interesting question. I would buy gear that's as flexible as possible. Like I don't buy one thing that does one thing anymore. Okay. You know, if I'm going to buy something, I usually have like a test. If it's a compressor, uh-huh. it has to work on the kick drum, the snare drum, an acoustic guitar, and a vocal. Okay. If I can get it to rock on those four things, then I can use it. Then it's flexible enough to where I can kind of, I'm not buying one thing that just only works on one thing. Like that vocal, that preamp is my vocal preamp. That's it. Like I can't afford to have one preamp that does that. You know, I want to be able to, to flip it up and have a little bit wider 
usage for it. Mm -hmm. So that would be my one thing. I used to collect a lot of things. Like I have those, these V72s that are not the most flexible anymore. Like I don't, I can't put them on a kick drum. I can't do a bunch of stuff. So I would say to, especially in this day and age, like you want things that are multi-purpose. Like I can't afford a $15,000 mic. I'd rather buy $10,000 mics and be able to get the whole drum kit in the room rather than I just got that one microphone. Flexibility for me is what I look for when I buy stuff and stuff that I actually like that I'm going to use all the time. Do you ever look at it as investment or is it just a tool that you eventually? Yeah, I never look at it as investment. I lost all that. Yeah. <laughs> we all bought pro tools. Like I, <laughs> I didn't get out before it went to the, the pro to tool the, stock market. <laughs> Before I went to the HDX, you know, I didn't transfer, you know, get the next wave up. So, you know, all that stuff we spent $5,000 on the HD core cards are now a hundred bucks. You're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I guess some of the gear I have is worth some money, you know, the DBX 160s and the Calrax, you know, but I don't look at it as investment. It's just what is my tools. It's just what I use. And do you tend to hold on to your tools or yeah. do you, or do you go through and I've actually pretty much got the same collection. I mean, I've added stuff, the distressors and I have these new Aphex channel stuff and um, I'm probably going to start buying some, some more compressors and stuff like that. I mean, but so much stuff is done in the box. You know, like I can do things now, like I'll record it how I want it going through as much stuff as possible. And then the next wave is I can use the LA2s in the box or the, you know, Puigs or, you know, so like buying more outboard gear is kind of a slightly losing prospect, you know, like how much stuff, you know, if I can put 30 of them on Pro Tools, do I need to buy one that I have to do piece by piece? So not so much anymore, you know, like buy And a lot of this stuff, you know, that I have, I collected because when I was at the Automat and then Fantasy, at a certain point, all of a sudden, everything started becoming piecemeal. Like when Stephen Jarvis and you'd rent stuff, like all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're renting preamps now. And so I started buying stuff back in the day because I could work anywhere I wanted to. I didn't have to be at, you know, Fantasy. I could take my Calrax and my knees and go to a smaller studio and still get the sound that I wanted. Hmm. Now, what about critical mistakes that you have, like, what are some doozies in your life that you have really learned from? I haven't had too many of those. I've been pretty fortunate. I, I was schooled pretty well. I mean, I would say the first one is I gated toms when I recorded, which was never a good thing because <laughs> the guy started hitting the cymbals harder than the toms and I lost a bunch of toms. It's like, okay, I'm never gating when I go to tape again. That was the early on in my metal career. Like I did Death Angel. It's like, ooh. Yeah. Don't do that anymore. I would guess the one is that you got to stick to your guns. Like I remember like um, on the Testament record, like I wished I would have gotten a better guitar sound. Which I, Testament record? Souls of Black. Okay. I, I actually had a better guitar sound and he wasn't happy. And we ended up with a sound that in retrospect was not that fantastic. <laughs> I mean, people like it, I, I suppose. But looking back, I would have fought harder for that guitar sound and said like, that's not good. Like it needs to be this, you know? I've had too many blunders. I had one, I erased part of an ad that I'd worked on, you know, pretty diligently just because I, I was so tired and the leader, I put like a ton of leader tape, but it was at the head instead of the tail. So when I hit record, I went over like the first 20 seconds of a spot that I'd been working on, which was really hard to get back. But I don't have too many disaster stories about like erasing the wrong shit. What are, what are the pros and cons of, of being a recording engineer now versus the days of the automat? It's a little bit more democratic now in some ways. Like, you know, back then, oh, it's funny. So when I was doing a Tesla record, I'll give you an example. 
I was working with Tom Zutad. You know Tom Zutad? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tom did Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue, and he signed Tesla. And I had done a couple of Tesla records before he came back to work with them. And I'm working with him, and I'm sitting next to him at the console, and he goes, man, you're really good. He goes, like, how come I didn't know about you? And, you know, we didn't work together. And I just, without missing a beat, I said, because back in the day, Tom, a guy like you wouldn't give a guy like me the time of day. And he kind of stopped at his track and he was like, oh, and he kept back going back to whatever he was doing. You know, the record company guys liked their guys. They didn't want to take a chance on the new guy. You know, they were very, very um, want to, to stretch out of their box and bring in somebody new. So it was really hard to get to those guys. And if you weren't, you know, one of the guys, quote unquote, you couldn't get in the club. Even doing the records that I had done, it was really tough to get them to look at somebody new, you know, hmm. unless you went out and proved it by yourself. So now I got a studio, I got a Pro Tools rig, I got a reputation. I can do just about anybody I want, you know. So I think that the fact that those guys have a little less power means that there's more opportunity for other people. That's to do definitely that. the rebel in you, yeah, you know. <laughs> and you can say, look, I can do that. You know, the band pays me, you know, a fair wage and we'll make a record and you know fuck your record company like i you know what do i need you guys for right so i think in that way it's kind of you know gotten a little bit better it's also maybe a little less glamorous like getting signed to a record company and doing that whole thing but you know half of those bands still owe their record companies money you know the record company didn't really do shit for them and you know they just put them on the hook and you know strung them along and yeah it's gonna be big and you know it's not big it's like what was your name again like what what band were you in? And, you know, cause they're still getting their salary. They're making money. They don't give a shit. What was great about the early days being a recording engineer. That's not so great now. Can you think anything that sticks out or do you like it better now? I still love it, man. I still get just, it's, I walk into a studio and it's just like, like being at home. I don't know. Maybe the bands were bigger. I mean, there was a little bit for me cause I do rock stuff. Rock was a little bit more glorious. Like, you know, you know, seeing these guys who are rock stars come into the studio. I mean, there's just nothing cooler, you know, like they got the world at their feet and, you know, they're doing whatever they want to do. They're making a living doing music. And there was a little bit more mystique about it. Just, you know, it was bigger. It was bolder. It was, you know, these guys were making a bunch of money and have that great gear and, you know, people to make it sound great. And, you know, hopefully they were inspired to do it. And some of them, not so much, mm -hmm. you know, but Maybe the newness of it. I don't know. Maybe just the fact that it was still on the way up. I mean, now that none of them are making money, you know, but it gets a little different when they're everybody's getting squeezed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you get work nowadays? Is it all just word of mouth and people randomly call you? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. You know, like I haven't really hustled a gig for a long time. Like I don't know actually how it works. Like my phone just keeps ringing. You know, like I did a band called Arno Corpse last year. It's like these guys who do everything in character as Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> And it came to me through, you know, a, a drummer who I did in another band who said, hey, you know, we loved working with Michael. And they came over and we met. They played me stuff. We talked about it. And it's like, yeah, this is really cool. Let's let's do it. And hmm. so, I, you know, somehow the phone keeps ringing and, you know, I keep answering it. And I did a, a new age piano record this year. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I would have never thought that I would have done something like that. Like, you know, like squirrely you know piano with whale sounds and you know just trying to do something different i did a i've done a couple of country records which i kind of like and so i'm trying to you know do different stuff i don't want to make the same record over and over i'm trying to 
find different tricks to to do. If I want to come make a record with you, is it sliding scale or is it is it a sliding scale because you know the um my wife would probably like, she's all about business these days so it's like well you need to charge more and it's like okay well then i won't work <laughs> you know it depends on the project if it's something that i want to do and i can figure out a way i mean i'm not doing it for 100 bucks a day right i'm not going to do that i'd rather sit at home there's a minimum level there's a minimum level but you know if it's cool people and it seems like it's going to be a fun project and you know i can make something out of it cool you know it'll go from 750 to, to two grand a song you know if you want to come in and do a quick and dirty style then it'll be closer to the 750 if you want to you know comp 50 tracks of vocals and you know sing it a hundred times then it's going to be a little closer to the other end because then it's going to be a lot of time and energy put into it so how do you flush it out do you like are there key questions that you want to know yeah, how do you want to make the record you know, are you paying for this yourselves? Like if, you know, it's coming out of your pocket, mm -hmm. you know, is this a vanity thing? Is this a label thing? Like I do stuff with Lars. I've done his last three um, old firm casuals record. You know, he has a limited budget. I said, okay, well, that's how much money you have. Okay, this is how much time we can spend on it. You know, it's not going to be like the rancid days. It's not like a month and a half on a record for that kind of dough. So let's sort of figure out how we can attack this thing and make it fair for me and fair for you. Do you, you know? generally operate with all in budgets meaning like does somebody just say well i got i got 3500 bucks or i got 10000 bucks what can we do pretty much and then the caveat that i'll put on it is that if you get crazy and want to tweak this thing like a a nutbag like we've talked about like with pro tools and yeah then if it goes beyond this time frame that we've set up then we'll have to adjust the money again right like if it's gone on due to no fault of mine Right. And we're spending four weeks on the guitars instead of like a week that we said, because you guys can't play, then we have to figure out some other way to kind of deal with it. Okay. And do you ever just say, well, that's, you know, based on what you want to do, that's kind of an hourly thing or that's a Sometimes day. I'll switch it to an hourly thing. Like if I see that somebody's being a little crazy mm -hmm. and it's like, this is not really going to work out for me, then I'll do it as a, an hourly in the studio. Hmm. I would say right now it's about 30% hourly, 70% fixed rate project kind of thing. You know, you know, we've talked about this just in our off, you know, off the cuff conversations about, you know, seeing, making sure projects get completed and that, you know, there's an end date. That's my new goal. That's what we've talked about it. And that's the next thing, because with this pro tools thing, everything just sort of drifts on and on and on and on and on. It's like, okay, I can work this week, but I can't work for the next two weeks. And, so I'm, my goal is to try and figure out, cause so maybe that's one of the things as well. Like back in the day you were asking about um, making records Yeah. back in the day. And even, so I'll get even a little bit more philosophical, like making a record is like taking a snapshot of time, right? Wherever you're at 1975 from August to November is where you're at from August to November. And that's just what it is, right? Okay. Nowadays, that August to November is now August to the following September. And you become a different person between that August and the following September. And I think it blurs the record really in a bad way. Like back then it was like, we're going in the studio in August. We're going to make the record. And in December we're out on the road and you went in there and you just went boom. And you just marshaled all of your energy and where you're at at that point in your life on making the record right then. Mm -hmm. And then you move on to the next thing. Good, bad, or indifferent. Like I made a great record because I was in a great place in August or I was in a crap place because my wife was leaving me and whatever, whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. 
So it was a, a more intense yet more complete picture of what was going on at that time. That makes sense? Totally. So now the problem is, is that everything is like, oh, it's taken me a year. It's like, by the time you get back to working on that song that you did eight months ago, it's like, well, that sucks. You know, like you're a better guitar player. I'm a better engineer. We have a better picture of the record. And the whole thing is just like this never ending. Let's just fix that. Let's just fix that. Let's just keep going back. And I think it just, it messes it up somewhat. I think that it needs to be we're going in for this two weeks and whatever comes out at the end of two weeks is what we're going to do. And if you want it to be really good, then practice your ass off and let's rehearse this and figure out all those questions before those two weeks, knowing that it's going to be two weeks and then we'll be done. So that's my next goal is to actually try and get back to how we used to make records because that's the big difference is that it now it's like you're never done. You're never done. Let me just re-sing this part. Let me add this part. Let me do this part. And you start to mess with the spirit of something. I like that. It's very goal-oriented. It's very get it done. And I guess if I were to make an analogy, the old days would be like you had the camera, you take the picture, you develop the, the picture, and that's what you got. Whereas now we could take a selfie and then you have to have picture approval. And then if they don't get picture approval, you take another selfie. And then we can put it into Photoshop and we can mess with the light and we can, you know, what do you think of this? And it just. Because then, you know, what happens with that dude is that you don't go, this is how I feel. This is what my heart tells me. And you go, boom. Instead you go, boom. And then you go, what? Is that really it? And then you go, boom again. Well, I don't know if that's really, <laughs> boom, is that really it? boom you know and you just kind of keep rethinking it and really your first inclination is your first inclination that's really the thing that you go that's what i feel now you just refine it a little bit boom let's get out of here and move on to the next thing and so that's my goal like with the, the whole pro tools thing is to try and close that window a little bit so it's not like oh my god i gotta come back and remix this thing again or i gotta do you know it's like it's just you, you never feel like you're done with something even if it sucks Right. Even if you go, well, that wasn't the best record I ever made or I could have done better on that drum sound. It's done. Let me move on to the next bit. Not right. Let me resample it or put, you know, new triggers and, you know, edit the arrangement and, you know, do all this stuff. So somewhere between the two, like the one take and you're done and the 100 takes, there's got to be a way to to wrangle that thing. in. I think this is good. I think this is a good place to stop this. That was just like a shit ton of information that was really pointed and really good. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, it's my pleasure, dude. All right, there we go. Michael Rosen on the Working Class Audio Podcast. I hope that was a good chunk of wisdom for all of you. I know it was for me. It was great to talk to Michael. So there you are. All right, so next week, we're going to be at uh, Working Class Audio number 23, getting ever so closer to 25. We'll celebrate at 25. Make sure you get on over to uh, Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, Tumblr, all that stuff. I think we're done. That's it. See you next week. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com.
Check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs> 